Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. Hello and welcome to the 187th episode of the Virtualization and Cloud Security Roundtable podcast. Today with me is Michael White, a technologist at Veeam. What is your new role there, Mike? Well, first got to say thanks for having me on, uh, Edward. I really appreciate it. My, uh, my new role is uh, an interesting one. I am a product manager in R&D, but I'm a product manager who has some features I'm responsible for, but also I do things like technical marketing, meaning I write some deep technical white papers. I've done a couple so far, working on a really exciting one as well. And then I do things like chat with you on your show. So it's a really <laughs> interesting role. Yeah, it is, actually. It's one of those dream roles. You get to kind of do a little bit of everything and, and actually get product out the door. Indeed, indeed. So um, Michael and I have been talking on the side about kind of what happens inside of a VM. This show has really been previously about what's happening around the virtual environment from the hypervisor to the VMs to management and everything in between. But we never really talked much about what's happening inside the VM and what you can do to secure it. Now, before we go any further, I would like to announce that Secure ESX, a DISA and VMware Security Configuration Guide scanner is now available. Just search for Secure ESX, and you can find it at um, www.astroarch.com, which is my consultancy, and you can find out what that's all about. And it ties into the Security Operations Center that I have used in the past, or have talked about in the past. Now, Michael, you've used this recently. What do you think? Well, I'm actually really impressed with it, and, and quite frankly, I'm looking at it this very moment as we chat. But uh, I used to be professional services, and often I was actually hired uh, to improve people's security position within their operating environment. So that means at the VM level, at the host level, and that sort of thing. And it used to be incredibly manual and hard. And what you've done is actually, it makes me smile because in the past it was all manual for me and then I could manual to figure out, manual to plan, and then I would have to research and then I would actually maybe use group policy or maybe I'd use some other tool to help execute. But what you've done is you give me an actual live dashboard to see what needs to be done and I can very easily get more information based on what I see and what I really like is as I work hard to make changes, so maybe I use a, a new setting in a host profile to make a change to a host, or maybe I make a change using group policy inside of VM. The fact is, is I can see the results of that change, not quite in real time, but very cl close to it in this dashboard. So I, I really feel empowered 
to do better security through Secure ESX. Couldn't have said any better myself. Thank you, Michael. And the interesting thing here is, is that it actually does feed into Log Insight. It'll feed into anything that just gobbles up syslog. But there's also the raw output, which actually has how to mitigate everything as well. And that's available for everybody to look at as well. It's using pretty much standards. It uses XCCDF. It uses SCAP. It uses all those and, and all those things that the people in, that need to understand DISA or use DISA will actually like. So you can actually go off and do that. And it's very, very visual. Um, the one in my lab I have set to run every half hour. I'm, you can run it every five minutes if you really wanted to. Uh, my environment, a half hour is good enough. <laughs> yeah, yeah, mine too. I really like how visual it is because the other aspect of this that I used to have to do is prove to people what I had done. And so this is a great way for me to know what I have accomplished or not. But also my old bosses, my old customers could look over my shoulder and very easily see the condition of the security posture. So it's handy for the workers, but it's also pretty useful for the management as well. And that's actually the, the SOC is really designed to help out with that. It's like the auditor comes and says, oh, you need to do X. like, oh, here, I've already done it. <laughs> I used to love telling auditors that, too. Well, now you have the proof you can give them and say, hey, you want the report? <laughs> and out, out it pops. So there's a lot you can do here. So that's available now. If you um, would like to talk more about it, go to www.astroarch.com. There's several links on the page you can go to to get to the site that um, you can review information about this. You can even submit a request to get further information and or make a purchase. So please enjoy and let me know if there's any problems there. But you mentioned in-guest, and you were talking about um, GPOs. In, in SecureSX is not yet about in-guest. And in-guest is actually much harder to do than the actual the, the hypervisor itself, which is what SecureSX is looking at right now. The in-guest actually has a lot of different features available too. And one of them that we wanted to talk to today was about SE Linux and why that's important and why you should enforce it. However, Modern's installs, and this is, I just noticed this recently, the modern install of Red Hat 7 or CentOS 7, you can actually pick a security posture that you would like. Like, say, for example, you need to be, do DISA Linux according to DISA. It actually has all the settings it will do. It will set it up for there and then get install the SCAP bits that allow you to determine if that's actually being met. So what I'm doing for the hypervisor, modern Linux, you can actually install and do the same thing internally to each so, each VM. It's actually pretty cool. Yeah, it's really amazing. And I didn't realize that they had brought that functionality to such an accessible state. I thought it was still a lot of work to do some of that stuff. It's still a lot of work to do everything. If you want to, if you want to make sure everything's there, you got to run the bits. It does a little bit of configuration, but there's still a lot of configuration for many of these tools that are manual, that require you to know what your organization's standards are. And that's that's the key, is if we can we can scan for everything we we know we can scan for, 
like, for example, in some of the things we can scan for saying, oh, if this value is not set, that's a failure. But if it's set, we don't know if it's set right. All we know is that it's set. So we need additional information to be able to say if it's set right or correctly for your organization. And just so leaves that level of capability up to you. I think that that difference between set or not and then what the value is, that's actually one of the things I've seen in other security software that's taken them a while to work towards. Because the difference between set or not and then set to whatever level it is, determining that is a little different. But it, it's an important difference that I think people need. Yeah, you can say, hey, it's not set, therefore you fail. You can also say, hey, it's it's set, therefore you pass. Or you can say, hey, it's set to the right value, therefore you pass. Those are your or three set options. To set to what? the wrong is useful too, right? The fact if it's it set to the pass. wrong, you fail, and then you would need to know that too. So yeah. actually, in the stuff that I did, if you went in and modified the base spreadsheets that we use to get all that information and include your personal stuff, it will actually compare against it. <laughs> so you could actually put in, right now it says it's not set, do that, but if it's set, we don't know if it's correct. We just say it's compared to X. And you actually, there's a possibility of putting in real values there too for some of it, which is kind of cool. Yeah, and you just made me think of something. I apologize for going back to something we were talking about earlier, but I think it's worth mentioning that your tool, Secure ESX, is actually using VMware's security configuration guide in the form of a spreadsheet to do yes. its checks as the source. So what you were just saying also applies to it. A customer could actually, working with a partner, for example, tweak the values that are in that spreadsheet, and then that would be what they're using, and thus what they see, in my case, in Log Insight, looking at the dashboard, would reflect their decisions. Exactly. It's the way it's designed to be done. We actually take the spreadsheet directly from VMware, make, split it up into multiple pages. We don't have to, but that's the way we've done it. And then you can modify the one that's actually we store and do whatever you want to it to put your values in. For some of them, that'll work, not everything. And that's because we don't necessarily look at some of the values because they don't exist. So if they are there, we, we, that's something that is on the, on the roadmap for the future is to make sure we do check against those. But for, for numbers and things like that, oh, absolutely, we'll check against it. It's the, the textual ones that have trouble. Well, yeah, and, and that sort of makes sense. And it is a walk, jog, run kind of thing. But I know yeah. that Mike Foley, uh, the security guy who's responsible for the security configuration guide, he loves the idea that people are able to consume his spreadsheet, not just as something on a big screen monitor in a conference room and debate, but that can actually be used with a tool to actually make yeah. things work better. And and I, I can certainly understand why he'd be happy with that, because it will mean that more people have secure environments, and that's a very good thing. Yeah, and, and when you start thinking about Host versus guest. Now we start talking about guest. There's a lot of ways to, to configure an environment to be secure. Standards are important here, just like they are with everything else. The Linux or start the Unix and Linux standard for DISA, for example, is very, 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 very good. 
And one of the things is SE Linux needs to be on. But the vast majority of people don't enforce at that level. I mean, there's an equivalent for Microsoft. I mean, um, what is it, AppLocker? I forget what it was called, to be honest. I haven't touched it for a while. The problem with these particular tools is you have to be you have to know your software so well to say yes I have access to that file system yes I have access to that port yes I have access to X Y and Z oh and yes I can execute that executable and that's actually kind of the, kind of the problem with a lot of these tools is that to come up with that it's very very manual or it used to be now every installer that I write or script that I write personally, is actually set up the SE Linux bits for it. And it doesn't take much. You need a web server. You need to turn on two or three extra SE Linux bits to ensure a web server will allow data to come in. That's all it's, all it's doing, saying, oh, you're not a web server, therefore I can't allow the data. Well, you need to tell it you're a web server. Once you apply that context, that security context to the web server files, it becomes very easy to set up or to the system, you'd say, oh, okay, that's a web server. So people have done a huge amount of work to ensure that what you want to run can be run in a secure way. It's important to make that easier. A few years ago, I visited a customer that was a U.S. Defense Department contractor, and in the building that I visited, they sort of had two sides to it one side where I could visit and one side where I couldn't. And they were, in fact, a Linux shop. And because of the complexity that they believed in securing Linux machines, what they actually did it had divided the company, uh, uh, metaphorically speaking, I guess, in half. And so they put all the effort on one half of implementing all the standards and making everything secure for the government work, and then on the other side, the other half, the corporate side of it, they didn't do as much. And by making things easier in install programs or things like secure ESX, those are things that can help people make good decisions on all the different sides of the business, and that means more defense and depth, and that's a good thing. And here's the thing. Applying a lo that level of standard to just one part of your business may not be the smartest thing to do. Oh, yeah. SE Linux, AppLocker, and things like that are basically mandatory access controls. That's what they do. They basically say you have to, it's, it's whitelisting. You have to whitelist the applications that are allowed to run and the ports that are allowed to access and the file system that's allowed to access and so forth. If you don't whitelist those, they just won't run. So in a general user environment, people run off all sorts of things. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm sorry. To me, that's not what should be happening on my network. If you are in a highly regulated industry, I'll guarantee you, you're not just running everything. You're running what is allowed to be run. So in those environments, doing SE Linux or AppLock or whatever number of mandatory access control programs exist, for, including GPOs, is not a bad thing. As a matter of fact, it probably would have been the saving grace for ransomware because it won't run. Yes, and I think that's a really important thing to mention a little more on, Edward, because a lot of people think about doing SE Linux or mandatory access controls because 
they're in a hospital or in a defense contractor. But I believe, based on the money that's being lost by customers you know, around the world to malware, that I think a lot of these things that we're talking about need to move outside of the area where traditionally it's been required or needed and put everywhere, if only to help with dealing with malware and avoiding issues with it. And this is where the vendors really can step up is because if you have a Linux tool and you don't actually work, um, set it up to work properly with SC Linux or you have a Windows tool and don't actually make it work with AppBlocker or whatever tool that you're using there, it's a number of them, you end up with a interesting problem that you, you as the vendor may be causing yourself. You're not shipping secure Therefore, if it, it now leaves it up to the end user to say, okay, I need this, or the administrators set that up, they really don't necessarily have the knowledge. It depends on the company. Yeah, That's absolutely. where the vendors can step up and say, oh, we have the knowledge, we're going to help you through this, or we're going to find the right person with the knowledge, and we're going to help you through this. It's just going to be part and parcel of everything we do. I mean, a lot of people I know for Linux just set it into um, – they just turn off enforcing mode and make it permissive for SE Linux. Or they just turn it off completely because they think it's too difficult. Yeah. When in reality, it's not. I used to run in permissive mode for years for a lot of my workstations, and I found out I didn't need to. I actually turned it into enforcing about two or three years back permanently. So that, and that forced me to make sure anything that I'm installing sets up the right security context. And they exist. I think that's not necessarily going to work for everybody. It did for you. But I think what you were saying before, the idea of vendors need to step up, I believe that's a big part of it. But also expectations need to change. Not everybody in a company needs to know how to do what you did, but somebody has to be in the company who does know how to do it and they need to be able to do it in a way that doesn't negatively impact everyone. So I think exactly. there's a variety of different points that need to be adjusted here. I would agree. Not everybody's going to be able to do this, and nor should everybody be able to do yeah. it. The administrator's team is probably the one that's going to be the key to that. Server, I mean, would you want to put this, this type of thing on a desktop? Absolutely. If I could whitelist applications and say only X will run, I'd be more than willing to do that. However, that will rule out the personal apps. There are going to be some apps that just won't run because they're not part and parcel of the image that comes from the organization. If they are, then by rights, they should be able to run. That's another thing that needs to be whitelisted. I mean, I know some groups that where you order an app, it takes care, you fill out the request, and it actually automates the deployment of that and automates the deployment of updating the whitelist. So that's possible. Oh, I, I've seen that at a couple of places, not nearly as often. The other thing, too, is quite a few years ago, I believe the software was called the Norton Administrator or the something like that. And it did an inventory, but it also had the ability to enforce, uh, so essentially whitelist, blacklist kind of idea of applications. And I only set that up for a few customers. But, oh, my goodness, it, it helped in a lot of different ways. So it helped with 
malware kind of stuff, where it helped with making things more secure. But it also, over time, meant less calls to the help desk because you didn't get calls to the help desk about why isn't my screensaver working or, or whatever. So there, there's dimensions to what we're talking about beyond the obvious that make it a positive direction to move in. Yeah. And that's and that's actually a really good approach then too because I mean that's a really good feedback because if you are doing support not getting those calls is actually a good thing. Oh yes. Um and not getting the x y to the next run is also a better thing. But it's that that actually requires that either x is not installed or X doesn't run because it's not in the security right security context, but you will get the calls of things that are misconfigured. Every time you do an update to Linux or Windows, you have to reset all that security context because every time you install a package, every time you update packages on anything, it can destroy what you have set up because it rewrites a bunch of things. Oh, oh yes, I've lived that where I've done yeah. nice secure environments uh, manually or through GPO with the help of the Microsoft uh, security, whatever it was called in those days. And you're absolutely correct. Service packs, but also even smaller patches in those days would often reset a bunch of things. And well, that's you couldn't really... see that today. You're yeah, not going to and... see that today on everything still. I mean, every time you, for example, every time you would reinstall or uh, upgrade ESXi or vSphere or even Hyper-V, Every time you upgrade a Linux box, every time you upgrade a Windows box, that security context can be changed. Okay. That configuration that you have as known good can be changed. That's why monitoring this stuff over time visually tells you that something changed. But it also reinforces those good practices of, okay, I just, I just installed new software. I just upgraded. Let me go and restore the security context. Yeah. And, and that – And it works. And, oh, <laughs> It's very painful, though. What I used to do and what I still do is I have, in fact, it's beside me here. I have a machine where I do the patching first so yep. that I know how it resets things or doesn't reset things because even in just my home lab here, I have SLAs i got to live up to. And by first testing the changes on one or two machines before it hits my supposed production machines, uh, that means I have less downtime. It means I have better SLAs. So everything exactly. you said is true. And the best way I found to deal with that is by having some machines that I could test first the impact. And then once I understood that, and there's tools out there that can do before and after of, a, of the state of a computer. And you can yep. use that to more quickly figure out what's going on so that you can tweak your security posture. And once you understand that, then all of a sudden it's much safer to do your patching. Or you can do, I mean, one of the things that I did as part of every installer, matter of fact, I have a bunch of installers for various things that are virtualization and just general security and, and things like that that are out there on my GitHub repository. Go to github.com slash techsiwill slash base, and you can use, just download the first one, and then you can use the um, update option and download all the rest. But every one of those, at the very end, when the installer installer is finished, it actually restores the security context. So it actually changes the context and then runs a restore across the whole file system. 
to ensure that the file system has not been modified or is not where it shouldn't be. Because every time you install something, I mean, these things go off and install, I think at most maybe 20 or 30 packages to support what, we're, what I'm, I'm trying to do, and mostly Perl packages in that case. But what it's doing is it's writing a whole bunch of data, a whole a new set of files. And it, the packaging itself doesn't actually do anything with the security context, so it gets a generic context. So what you do is what, what these installers do is the very last thing it does is it runs through the file system and says, you know what, change everything to what we've told it is known good. That's pretty darn amazing, actually. So what happens is SE Linux isn't broken. If you're in permissive mode, you'll get less things in your log file. If you're in enforcing mode, less things will look like they're broken, and you'll be able to run completely. But you've got to actually do a whole changing because it actually stores the context somewhere else so it can restore it. So it's actually not – you've got to make sure you can, not, you can do all that first. So when you think about – I mean, one of the ones I haven't published yet that I'm working on is I have an own cloud installation. The own cloud is a basically an on, on-site cloud. It works as a storage cloud for files and file sharing and so forth like that. But it also, I mean, I use it to sync my phones and sync my laptops and so forth and sync all my computers to it for calendar and things like that. So it becomes that central repository for data. Yet every time I have to update it, because it does require updating, I have to restore the security context because you actually get new files and you have to apply the right context to those and then restore everything to make sure it's not, not broken. That itself is a process that's non-trivial. And it, so far, it's changing every major release, what you have to do. But the fact is, is that one, it's well-documented. So if it's well-documented, they've at least thought about it. And you can actually copy that and do the exact same thing in anything you're working on. So I actually have a shell script, another script that just does that. And it's the same thing with GPOs and, and Windows. You've got to find, you can use PowerShell to do the exact same thing. Yeah, and and a lot of us will do that, even though we may not be very good PowerShell people. It's easy to copy and paste, and it's just protecting yourself. But you brought up another thing, Edward, that's important once again, and that is the idea of even in your own cloud, you're upgrading it fairly regularly. And we have to do that nowadays more than in the past uh, to be more proactive about protecting against malware because many of the recent malware stuff that we have seen in the news was actually successful by exploiting uh, stuff that hadn't been patched yet. Exactly. So it's part of the strategy to keep things current, thus rewarding, uh, minimizing the impact of malware or the potential, but that also means you do need to have that script that you talk about so that before and after you are able to restore the security permissions or the profile, and the fact you build it into your installer is just the coolest thing, actually. Yeah, this one isn't out there yet. I haven't finished the own cloud installer upgrade system, but it's one of the ones that's on my list. But that's actually because I want it to be enforcing. I want the strongest security I can have. I mean, I've always been a fan ever since I heard about it, the mandatory access controls. And when SE Linux first came out as a part of a Linux distribution, I installed it and played with it and said, okay, I can lock myself out of everything very easily, so i got to be careful. 
Yeah, most I of the people I yeah, and I did it just because I could. Um, but one of the things that most people don't realize is that this tool has grown in in, in capability as more and more general use servers come out more and more of these security contacts for those servers are actually in place. It didn't start with a whole library of, thing, a library of settings and configurations, but it does have it now. And, and that's the other thing I find in, in our industry. A lot of people say, don't use X because four years ago when I tried it, it didn't work, right? But they haven't tried it since then. That, that that really is true. We see a lot of that, and some of it uh, is almost legitimate. What I mean is, is when I was a professional services guy, and I did that for I don't know ten or ten or twelve years, I think. The fact is, I was conservative on behalf of my customers. So when something stung me, I protected all my other customers from that. But after a while, because of changes in the customers or whatever. I would retest things to see if I could change my mind or I changed my opinion, but I was careful about that. And when I found for the second time in a year or two years the same problem, then again I might not recommend it to customers, but I kept revisiting it because often things that had a problem that caused you to not like it, they get such a reaction, they not only fix it, but they learn from it. And so sometimes that scenario means in a year or two, you're actually better off with that product than you might have expected. Exactly. So you can't rule off setting GPOs or AppLock or, or C-Linux based on a past experience. When you go to the modern versions of Linux, and I'm talking about the latest versions, not, not I mean, the, three, the ones with the 3.0 kernels, the 3.whatever, 3.10 kernels, whatever release has that, and the one before that, actually, those are usually pretty rock solid, and they actually have a lot of updates to these security tools. And now the biggest update that I've seen is that you can actually not just test against SCAP for DISA, for example, you can actually apply it. So it's actually, can, you can apply most of the changes that you need to make. That's a big win, because now I can harden the guest operating system and I have a hardened and virtual environment or a verified virtual environment, and I have a verified OS, now you have solved audit and compliance problems or issues. Yeah, you minimize a lot of things. Too, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, it's, it's a really big deal. And it if is. you design that good, you really significantly minimize the calls to the help desk. You minimize the issues day-to-day -day for people or week-to-week -week or month-to-month. And so it's security for the sake of security, but done well, it's for the sake of improving the experience an end user has with IT. Exactly. Now, if someone was doing, um, wanting to get in, uh, started with SC Linux or even GPOs, what's, 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 you can cover the Windows side, I'll cover the Linux side. If you want to get started with SC Linux, apply it to what your web servers first, to be honest. All the security context for a web server is there. So all you need to do is make sure that the web servers are running and that the context is applied and you can actually set enforcing 
pretty regularly. And that way means that anything in a given directory has a given security context and is allowed to have access to port 80 and 443. And well, whatever port you want to specify, but those are the two main ones. If you go that route, it's a good, it'll get you started and they'll give you that experience of saying, oh, I can do this. It's really straightforward to do. For GPOs and or other things, what's the, what's the process you would take? Well, I think the first thing I would suggest someone who hasn't done much with GPOs first, there happens to be a book I'm fond of. I've actually bought it in each of its versions, so there's been three editions. I bought all of them, and I hope it's all right if I mention it by name. Sure. Uh, it's written by Jeremy Moskowitz, and it's called Group Policy, Fundamentals, Security, and the Managed Desktop. And when you have this book, it's a great reference, and there's lots of examples it gives you of things you can do. But really, I think the same idea that you had, the idea of starting small, doing any one thing, it can be uh, very simple and should be very simple, and you start out with that one thing, and you see how quickly it gets out to the desktops. You, you see how quickly it doesn't get out to the desktops, and you start learning, and then what you do is you then start with one machine after that, one machine in its own OU, and you start tweaking the security of that one machine uh, to the level that you think is appropriate for your industry, for your environment, and you see how it works. And as you see how things work and you like it, that's when it's really easy to take the group policy that's applied to that one virtual machine and apply it to an OU worth of virtual machines. So basically what I'm saying is get some education and then sort of a staggered start where you start small and then you go big in a small way and then you go big in a big way. Exactly. And the other thing you can do, and this is kind of what I kind of do my whole life, is actually after you do that, you can start thinking about how you can do that. So what, what else is needed? And you can do that by doing a threat model. And a threat mm -hmm. model is really very similar to an architecture, but it's more about how can you do X, Y, and Z. Um, yeah, it's really about thinking like a bad guy. What would a bad guy like to get his hands on? And understanding the possibilities there, and then really thinking about those and seeing how your defenses will handle them or not handle them. Exactly. Really and it's really good exercise. And if you really want a book on SC Linux, there's an old one on from O'Reilly. It's SC Linux um, is the name of the book. It's an O'Reilly book. You can look it up. It's fairly old, but it actually has a lot of good information in it. I'm sure I, they probably updated it since then. I love O'Reilly books. They they do a pretty darn good job very often. Yeah, and I have the zoo. One of, people have one or two animals. I have the zoo. That's pretty good. I only have like a quarter zoo. Um, yeah, this is a Western one. It actually looks like an old Western um, soldier. Just to, and so it's um, that's what's on the cover. Yeah, if anybody um, wants to know what the heck we're talking about, O'Reilly's does a really nice job. It it used to be a woman. I forget her name. I used to be a reviewer at O'Reilly. And um, this lady would pick the cover for people. And there was a lot of work and thinking that went into it. And so 
so different animals or things. And it's really quite interesting when you have, like Edward has a bunch of O'Reilly books to see what's on the cover. And I really like how this lady would write. I forget her name, so I apologize for saying you know that lady. But she would write in the book what it. I think it was called the colophon, maybe. Yep. But would explain the significance of what's on the cover, and it was really pretty cool, actually. Yeah, most of my books, when I get published, actually have jet engines on the cover, mainly because well, I, this is really complex stuff. And it's also my background, <laughs> but exactly. when you start thinking about an engine, it's not a simple pro- and simple thing. You have to start – it's a lot of moving parts. And for virtual environments, specifically around security, there are really a lot of moving parts. The host – the network, that's one thing. The guest operating systems, that's entirely different. And you can't really mix the two when you do your analysis. You can say, we, we, we all say, take management, stick it behind a firewall, and that'll, that's like the lowest hanging fruit of virtualization security. And that's true. But every application has its own lowest hanging fruit. So when you look at your LAMP stack for your servers or you're looking at your Docker container hosts, they are different applications, and they are not the underlying hardware and the underlying infrastructure, software or hardware. So you've got to think now, okay, I'm at the app layer or I'm at a different layer. How do I secure it? And then, I mean, and then you go up to the application and say, how do I secure that? For example, container hosts, which are actually nothing more than virtual machines inside of most clouds today, not all clouds, but most, really do a great job of using basically three three basic technologies. And those three basic technologies are built into the Linux kernel. One is called C-groups. And that's kind of a, a, a way to say, hey, these groups of things have access to things with inside their own group. So it's kind of a, a gross level thing. And they can also do enforcement using SD Linux so that they can say these ports are allowed for this container and so forth. However, if you're doing a, a CI CD, de- a continuous integration, continuous deployment, and don't understand SD Linux inside your container, you may end up doing yourself, it may be painful <laughs> because yeah. you didn't think about it. The host, is, the container host is going to protect the container host. The containers themselves, you have to protect still. Yeah, and we've heard, I believe I've heard some interesting sort of complaints in this area of people that haven't paid attention. But I think to net some of that out, the idea is that you need to think of security in the whole, and you need to be able to understand security in the pieces meaning that you think of it as a stack and you ha- have the different elements in the stack working together where possible because any spot in that stack that has an opening, that's where a bad guy is going to slip in at some point. Exactly, and that's why threat modeling is so important. So yeah. if I'm threat modeling an application, I'm not going to bring in any of the underlying layer, the infrastructure, whether that's software or hardware. Because it's not part of the application's responsibility to secure that. i got to assume or somebody else has threat modeled that layer. So if you want to bring it all in, you can. It gets really complex very, very quickly. I've done it. 
it's not oh. something you want to do. <laughs> True, but the way that we did that in the past is the database guy, Frank, he would do an excellent threat model of the database and the things on top of it. And then someone else did the web, and I did the infrastructure. And so we each worked within our world so that we had a really good understanding, in fact, had a diagram. And then we got together and worked together and looked at each other's diagram, and we looked at how things fit together. And so uh, I found that that worked actually really well. It allowed us to have apps or infrastructure that was better secured, but when we also worked together, that actually, I think, enhanced the, the elements working together better. Yeah, and you, you need to look at that, and it's actually a team effort. Yeah. As things change in the application, what you're using in the infrastructure could change. Therefore, the underlying layers may change and so forth and so on. And you've got to really think about everything up and down the stack, but you don't have to do everything up and down the stack. If you're a developer, yeah. the threat model will look really, really – I mean, the, the, the data flow diagrams or the, the data flow of your threat model will look really close to the architecture. And it should. But that allows you to say, okay, once I have that diagram or that blueprint and I show traffic to and from on different things, by the way, I just described how you deploy things in Ravello, right? I create a blueprint and I say I want this connected to this and this connected to this, and I want to speak these protocols with these ports. It just deploys everything you need. Well, when we get to that, that actually that blueprint that you have from a architecture or developer perspective can also be used as the basis for your threat model. There, there's and they do go hand in hand. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. There's another use to them that I find only true in the last couple of years, and I'm starting to work on some of this in my lab, and that is the idea of using that information to help you prepare for automation projects. Absolutely. Can, it uses it for both. Yeah, and I love automation because it means consistency, whether it be consistent wrong or consistent right. You know, that's something else. But it's the same thing the same way every time. And that can actually help your security environment um, just simply minimizing the amount of human mistakes. Well, and actually, when I, when, that's why I do a lot of scripting is that I'm scripting my security as well as scripting the deployment of the application. Yeah. So as I go through the Agile process, security is part of every part of it. If I'm using FC Linux, GPOs, whatever, or even um, AppLocker and those types of tools that do mandatory access controls, and GPOs don't quite do that, but AppLocker and FC Linux do. When I do that, if I put that in the script to say configure AppLocker when I install or when I do an update, this is a win. Oh, yeah. Because I've just made my security easier. I've just met my compliance and security policy requirements. I can audit against that, which my compliance and audit folks would love. And everybody's involved. Now, I, can't, I, I know most people don't know how to do this. And that's fine. But somewhere in most big organizations, there is somebody that knows security well enough to do this, knows the operating system well enough to do this and knows the compliance requirements. 
And what those people are, those are great resources to start your own own learning on how to how to do it for your organization. This is where you can actually start making yourself a stronger developer. Yeah, that that's true. I've I've found that sometimes they're all different people, and sometimes it's people that have a couple of those things. But also, I found customers. In fact, customers found me, and I was helping them because they. They had some of those skills, but they didn't have all of them. And what they needed was someone to help them understand how to pull everything together. So sometimes Absolutely. you can get outside help, someone who's done some part of what you're discussing, to actually be a leader for a short time, to pull everything together, and then you know slip away into the, into the night. But that can also help you get going. And what I like about that, um, and I've both been the person doing it and the person receiving it. What I like about it is if you pick well, then what you do is you get a person that's done it before and made mistakes, and now you get to learn vicariously instead of going through those mistakes yourself. Exactly, and then you, what you end up having is a person that ends up being a security developer. And those people are very, very very, very hard to find. If you were looking for one to buy, to hire today, they're the big ticket dollar numbers because they have a wealth of information, a wealth of knowledge, and a wealth of experience on, in, on not only just security but actually writing code. So one of my, I, I agree. One of my um, previous um, employers created a, a security group within R&D, and they looked at code to criticize it or to not criticize it. But what they spent more time on was the lunchtime seminars or the visiting team meetings and trying to teach people to code securely without having to recode securely. Exactly. And, and that made such a huge difference. And they also uh, were numbers-oriented, so they actually kept track of all the meetings they did, all the corrections they did, and they were trying to show, and they did prove uh, that they actually made a difference. By doing more education than correction, they ended up over time producing better code in that R&D group. And more secure code from scratch, from the beginning, is the be-all, end-all. That, that, that's the ideal when you can have it. But you also need to realize it's not just the, that code is not just writing code that the program runs. It's actually the code that you write, or the scripts that you write, or the tools you use, whether that's Puppet Chef or some sort of shell script you wrote, or PowerShell script that actually sets the security up when it's uninstalled as well. That is still code. Yeah. And it's yeah. it can be very tricky writing code. It's not something that you're going to sit out there and just whip off in like ten minutes. It's it's going to be difficult, or it can be. But once you get used to it, it's like, oh, okay, I know how to do that. Um, I don't know how I'll do that. Let me do a little research. But you'll get to the point where you actually have all the answers you need in one and spot. You can, and you can reuse it. That stuff is often quite reusable. Absolutely very reusable. In fact, I build a framework and reuse everything that I can I can think of when I do install. I write installers. And that's worth doing because that means, again, that consistency is safer and there's less mistakes along the way. Absolutely. Well, so we've talked about now 
the host and everything for years. Now we've talked a little bit about guests. Um, if anybody has any questions about what we just talked about with SC Linux, AppLocker, and other other security tools that you can use for that the installers need to think about, or if you need to have that applied, um, send me a question. I'll be glad to answer it, or, or Michael. Um, but also, you may want to – I think my final thought on this is you really want to go to the vendor and say, hey, I need it to work well with X, whatever X is. And if it's part of the operating system, that's even better because they just missed it. And, most and you can actually – oh, sorry. Uh, I was just going to say most of the vendors out there, um, like Microsoft or like VMware, they actually have tools to help you make decisions about securing your environment. And so yes. it's worth looking at them, using them, talking about them with your team. Absolutely. And once you have mandatory access controls at that level, you could literally set it up so that you can whitelist every application you want. That whitelist alone would alleviate most ransomware attacks. By I say most, it may not alleviate 100% of them, but it'll get close to 99%. There are some other attack avenues that people need to worry about. But it, this is the uh, security is never going to be perfect. Never. Security is a journey. It's we are improving things as we go and making things more secure and more secure and more secure. But it's a never-ending journey, and I think the best we'll ever get to is that 99%, because as soon as we get a little past that, something else will happen. Something will change. Well, let's say 98%. Then. 99 is the goal. 100% would be great, but we know we'll never get there. So, yeah. again, you've got to pay, pay attention to the whole stack, up and down. But if you're running an application and the first thing you're worried about is escape the VM, I'm sorry, you're doing it wrong. Oh, that is so true. It's like if I, 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 people come to me and say, oh, let's talk about this. It's like, no, I don't want to. It's, it's, I'd rather talk about how your admins are actually, your operation folks are actually getting access to the data. I'd rather talk yeah. about that. And I go, well, why would you want to do that? That's not a threat. And it's like, and then I have to do a threat model to show that it actually is. You need to go and where you can, I mean, with, with your application, with your environment, you have to go over the ticket, the items that you can actually affect, that you can actually be effective in making change. Don't go after things that are esoteric. Yeah, it, that's so true. It's it's a really important thing to understand, though. The idea is is you need to work on realistic things. What? In fact, there's an acronym I think, SMART, so specific, measurable, accurate realistic and trackable or something, but the oh idea God. is to work on things that are realistic. So VM escape is not realistic. It's not something that's going to happen to you. But your administrator... Well, actually, people going I know, I know people are going to argue that it is possible, and we can get into that debate. Sorry, I shouldn't have said that. Going after like the lowest hanging fruit of virtualization security or even application security doesn't mean forget everything else. Correct. It just means go after what you know you can make changes to. You can't change the underlying hypervisor, especially in clouds. It's just not going to happen. You can't tweak X to be Y. All you can do is ensure that the application you're running in that cloud 
is going to meet a, a certain level of security. And you can affect that better than you can affect what's happening in the, in the software infrastructure. That's particularly important with the trends we're seeing where more and more things move into the cloud. There's clouds out there where you won't know what the underlying hypervisor is or if there is one. So you'll only be able to secure the stuff that you have control of, that you know about. Like, for example, if you're using um, Amazon Lambda as part of your application, it needs to process a whole bunch of data. Well, is if some of that data is personal identifiable information, Lambda really shouldn't be processing it, but you can use format-preserving encryption. And if you use format-preserving encryption, if you do the, everything the right way, then that format will be preserved, and the token that gets put there will be the same token for everything that shows up with that piece of data. All people will know is it's a token. They won't know that it's a person or an address or anything like that. Lambda shouldn't even see it. So we need to think about this as this is not just about, you know, hey, how do I use SC Linux? How do I use AppLocker and so forth? Those are great tools. I would use them. But it's also thinking about how you transfer data back and forth to to clouds and within your own data and within your own database and, and data center. You got to make sure you have the right encryption and the right SSL and the right TLS and so forth to make sure it works. There's a lot of moving pieces. It's no one thing. It's a big landscape it that is. we work within now that we have to worry about security. Yes, we do. Well, Michael, thank you so much for joining me on this episode of the Virtualization and Cloud Security Podcast. We went over, for everybody, we went over in-guest. Um, we looked a little bit at the data center, but we also really, in the infrastructure, but most of this conversation was about the guest. Do you have any closing thoughts, Mike? I had a a good chat. I really appreciate it. My closing thoughts would be sort of what I've already said, and that is, is if you practice good security, you will have more secure apps, more secure environments, and that's a good thing. That means you'll have less problems with malware. But if you do that, you can also get other benefits out of it. You can have less calls to the help desk. You can have less frustrated people. And in this day and age, with all the threats that there are out there, the fact is antivirus alone isn't going to stop things. It's going to no, take a blend. It's going to be a defense in depth. And so whether it be for the security or for the, the improved help desk stuff, or whether it be to mitigate when malware finally does hit you, this discussion we had on security moving through that journey of making the stack more secure, the environment more secure, is very worth starting on now. Absolutely. Start small and work your way out from there. Yeah, exactly. Well, thank you, pleasure. Michael. Have a, thank you. Have a great day, everybody. Thanks, everyone. See, you, uh, see everybody on the next Virtualization Security Podcast. 
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.